Hi, and welcome to episode 7 of ContourCast. I'm Kat Boyd, and I'm joined with my friend and co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? Um, great, there's a giant arm within our straightaway. <laughs> How's your week been, David? Uh, it's been okay. Uh, okay. Um, I'm currently moved out of my flat. It's got no toilet. So last episode when I was telling everyone about my Connor Cast broom cupboard and how great it was, mm-hmm. um, I forgot to mention that I'm getting the bathroom redecorated at the moment. Mm-hmm. But the fetters have taken the toilet out and it's been out for some days. So we can't record in my flat, so we're recording in a friend's flat. Your experience of um, being without toilet (laughs) is about to become a national experience, (laughs) I understand. Um, Yes, because I read this week in the paper, and I was just telling David about this earlier, one of my new favourite Brexit scaremonger stories is that Britain is going to run out of toilet paper Mm-hmm. Because of Brexit, this is um this is all part of a dastardly plan of a small number of hard right Brexit financiers who have shorted the market um on the you know very you know unlikely outcome that Britain is soon awash with shit. <laughs> Right. I'll tell you what it is, right? It would right? be like a wash with shit. It would be a wash with shitty British arses. <laughs> well, it's slightly different. Well, what I've heard is, right, and this is definitely true. Can I just also say David Jameson is about to eat a Malteser Live right here. at this point yeah. in a conversation <laughs> about shitty Um, You see, what I've understood, what I now understand after Brexit is like, I used to think that to understand society, you need some kind of structural analysis or something like that of social classes and the reproduction of the system and things like that. Now what I understand, all, all things that happen in politics happen because of small groups of financiers who are shorting the market, right? So I'm pretty certain that it's the case that there's some awful uh, right-wing Brexiteer guy who keeps all his money offshore. And what he's doing is he's buying up shares in baby wipes. And after a toilet paper drought of approximately three months, three months where, as you say, Britain will become a very sort of shitty place, um, he will uh, suddenly cash in uh, and flood the, flood the market with baby wipes. I would be happy if it was baby wipes, but what I'm really worried about is that the guy who is short in the market is the owner of lots of stocks and shares in one particular company, which is that company that produces, I mean, I'm not even, you can't call it toilet paper, but you know that. It's like, it's like sandpaper. It's yeah, it's called Izal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's medicated toilet paper. Oh god! And it's like it's like punishment. Mm. It's like the worst kind of texture of like a paper towel mm-hmm. that you would ever get. At uh, Common Space, where I work, 
that we've started using um, a range of sort of eco-friendly <laughs> shit, right? Including toilet paper that's been recycled, which sounds, by the way, <laughs> so fucking disgusting, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that just means that you know it's been used to mop up someone else's shite before, right? <laughs> no, I don't think it's like oh. <laughs> recycled toilet paper. I think it's toilet paper made of recycled things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I still. <laughs> I, I, I I still consider it so fucking unclean. I wouldn't touch it, even with my ass. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. You touch it with a shitty stick, which is inevitably what you're going to be using to clean your bottom <laughs> after Brexit. <laughs> Um, uh, but we're also using uh, like a, a brush for dishes that's made out of like bamboo fibers. It's fucking shit. Uh, and various sorts of like hideous hand soap that I keep thinking because it's really kind of rustic. I keep thinking it's a bit like that bit in Fight Club where uh, it's made out of uh, women's fat It's rich women's fat oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we've gone eco and I can tell you that the future's... It's horrid. You know, I don't really know the world's worth saving. It's making me think of, um, you know, when Zizek talks about toilets in different European countries and how they represent an ideological tradition. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? I think so. And he makes this point that in the traditional German toilet, so the bit where the shit disappears after you flush is right at the front of the toilet. Mm-hmm. So that the shit is first laid out for us to sniff and inspect for traces of illness. <laughs> <laughs> and and he says that this is like this is like German conservatism. Right. So a type of reflective thoroughness, if you like. Okay. Um, and then he says in the typical French toilet, the hole is at the back. So the shit is supposed to disappear as quickly as possible. And he says this is like French revolutionary radicalism. Right. And then the American toilet is a synthesis, a mediation between these opposites. So you have a toilet basin full of water so that the shit floats in it, visible, but not to be inspected. <laughs> and like he likens that to a kind of utilitarian pragmatism. Okay. That's what he uses the toilet. So I really wonder what this toilet paper crisis says about us. About about Brexit. Yeah. Um I mean, um, what 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 about what does he say about British toilets? Is that just the American toilets? Yeah, like Anglo-Saxon. Oh, yeah. So, in a bid to escape like, cultural colonization by the United States, we're literally going to share ourselves. I think that colonization. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't good. believe I just tried to inject some <laughs> intellectual <laughs> seeds into that bit of conversation. Yeah. Well, well, I don't. <laughs> so speaking of the UK-US grand alliance with our new wonderful leader Boris Johnson mm-hmm. and he's not been in charge very long um, I'm really worried what we're going to do on this pod when Boris is inevitably voted out yeah like yeah I mean politics will become less interesting though I actually have to say of Boris Johnson so far you know, I have a lot of people saying well, he's going to be Britain's Trump, indeed Trump himself. Yeah, he's not as funny as He's Trump. not funny. He's not funny, he's not really, funny. at all. Like, uh, he's not reckless enough. 
Nah, you know. it's very calculated. I think with his yeah. game, he doesn't have the he doesn't have the wit of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you said that the Financial Times are saying election date the fifth of December. Is that fifth right? of December? Yeah. So the the slogan is Corbyn by Christmas. I mean, I can I can see Corbyn as Santa. Mm. Yeah, he's a bit too lanky. But yeah, he's got the white beard and the... Yeah, I was thinking more one of those like sort of shady shopping centre Santas <laughs> that you get. You know, the ones that are just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bad Santa Corbin. <laughs> Bad Santa. Listen, that has an audience. <laughs> um, there's also the really sad news from the US elections about Bernie. Oh, God, yeah. Um... I mean, it couldn't have come at a worse time. I know. I felt, um, I felt, so I felt sorry for Jacobin, who are kind of like Jacobin's more or less the official publication of the Sanders campaign now. And uh, they were going out the way to, to, to you know, I, I wrote an article saying, relax, heart stents are actually really common. And on the one hand, it was sort of like, respect the effort, guys. But, you know what I mean? <laughs> We're clutching at straws at this point. Yeah. I mean, the main attack line against Barney that had any salience was, realistically, he's mm. too old. I know. You know? And look, I mean, I mean, I hope... Um, I, I hope that he's still in with a shot. What I have seen in the last few days is more people manoeuvring towards Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Um, which I think um, is the real danger to Sanders because if it was Sanders versus Biden first of all the age thing wouldn't come in you know what I mean I'm not I'm not sure that Biden's in uh, better health than Sanders at all I'm sure Sanders is not in good health the problem is it's, it's a point Sanders in which a functioning brain yeah Joe Biden looks like he's going through some kind of malfunction I've yet to see him uh, cohere a single working sentence and what about all that like touching women thing yeah, like, yeah I mean I think he is just being like friendly isn't he mm. isn't he <laughs> but <laughs> but he's definitely like you know he doesn't have those social boundaries and he obviously doesn't really understand why that may not be such a good idea mm. but I think um, Warren ticks enough boxes in many directions unfortunately I think that the box she doesn't tick is being a charismatic force to well, beat Trump. Have you seen this scandal? The scandal about Warren? What, so the the Native American thing? No. They were really looking forward to Warren being a candidate so that Trump can just call Keep her Pocahontas. Pocahontas all the time. All yeah. the time. No. There's a set alleged sex scandal involving Elizabeth Warren and a young former Marine who claims that Elizabeth Warren hired him multiple times when he was an escort. Oh, cool. Yeah. That gives her a bit of edge. Exactly. So she tweeted out... She could um, be making this up. Yeah. She tweeted out, go Cougars. Right? But, like, <laughs> <laughs> but Cougars is the mascot of her university. She went to the University of Houston there. Mm-hmm. The mascot team or whatever is like are the cougars or the mascot this cougar and so she tweeted then go cougars but obviously everyone's like oh snap snap <laughs> sister <laughs> but I actually think 
that this whole thing about the sexy young Marine and Elizabeth Warren and Cougars is to try and inject a bit of sex appeal into Elizabeth Warren's campaign. It's very dry. And <laughs> not like that. <laughs> We're keeping this in. Keeping that in. No, it, it, do you know what I mean? She is really boring. Like, there's no sort of, like, there's no edge to her. I mean, every single candidate, every other candidate in the race has some kind of dangerous edge mm. apart from one. <laughs> yeah, dangerous edge. Biden possibly losing his marbles for getting not to abuse women in public. That's a certain edge. Biden, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Sanders. Uh, but he's edgy. Well, he's 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 edgy because he could drop dead at any point. <laughs> <laughs> because he hates the rich. Yeah, yeah. Like he really, he's edgy in American society because he's an unrepentant socialist. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he has edge. He also has that really like trad wife mm-hmm. vibe. Like she's just really proud to be his parents. Yeah, yeah. What I was trying to think, what gems. Um, Boris Johnson had brought us this week and uh, you mentioned the Extinction Rebellion. Is this the un- uncooperative crusties? Yeah. Do you know... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean... Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm in very two minds about the aesthetic of Extinction Rebellion because I love certain parts of it. Like, I love the pageantry. I love all the people dressed up in red um, like it's that film Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that. That's cool. Is that the, when they're dressed in red and they're going to cross London Bridge? Like that looks, looks like that a death really march. Cool. I like yeah, that I love all that. The I love the pageantry, right? Up to a point. And another thing that I love is um, that some people got married at one of the demonstrations recently. I'll tell you why I like that, right? And I noticed this is a because uh, all obviously at the weekend there was a big all over all under one banner march as well. Yeah. One of the things that makes me sympathetic to that is they have people get married at the demonstrations, which is a really yieldy thing in politics. See, in the first half of the twentieth century, for example, like very extreme political movements used to do that kind of thing. They used to have like communist marriages, fascist marriages, stuff like that. And it always reminds me of that great scene in uh, Battle of Algiers. Uh-huh. Where Excellent the, film. yeah, where the, um, the, 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 the national, what's it called again? The FL, the Algerian National Liberation Front, yeah. um, marry a couple in an, in an illegal ceremony that kind of marries them both to each other and to the national liberation movement. I love all shit like that. It indicates something, I think. I always think it indicates A, a degree of um, critical mass in a social movement where it starts to adopt state-like functions and it also indicates loss of support for traditional forms of like organisation mm. and state organisation that institutions that would once because in our country you can only be married by the state of the church and there's a special reason why it's only a very like authoritative organization can do that because it's such an important function of society once social movements start to marry people it's quite a subversive sort of thing to yeah. do so i think that was yeah, cool that's interesting. so on the one hand there's that 
And then on the other hand, man, there's art school students chewing the faces off, doing mad little dances. <laughs> like, I, I, I kind of feel sorry for the, the, the Extinction Rebellion people who turn up and do all the pageantry. They're all kind of like in their 40s and 50s, right? But the other contingent that goes along to an Extinction Rebellion demonstration in central London is, yeah, everyone from the drama schools. And the result is a sort of drugged up catastrophe. I mean, I came to this Extinction Rebellion conversation fully prepared to defend to the hilt. Because I do like the Extinction Rebellion. I have a lot of sympathy with their tactics. Mm. So I know that everyone, like, recently, especially on Twitter, has been hating on their tactics, the stuff about the police. I think has, like, brought them quite a lot of social criticism. Yeah, but I find that naff, do you know what I mean? But see the thing with the police? I think it's a play. I Mm. think that they're doing a love bomb on the police. Mm. Because what's the point of writing... A cab on your forehead, mm-hmm. and you're just going to get battened to death. Yeah, and we saw that during the student movement, and I think that people are trying to learn different tactics and ways to deal with state authority. Maybe it, maybe it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. Right? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Because part of their tactics are being you know, getting arrested just mm-hmm. because of disruption. But I have quite a lot of respect for this tactic of like just being as annoying as possible until you get what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's this kind of like pester politics. Yeah. Where you're just going to be very irritating, whether that's sitting in the middle of the street or doing a weird little dance dressed up as a funny animal. Yeah. I mean, no one's going to take you seriously. But if you really think that the planet is on the course that it's on mm-hmm. and you're involved in extension rebellion, then you don't really care that you're making a tit out of yourself or you're hopping along dressed like a frog. Yeah, yeah, as we witnessed once. Um, oh yeah, David and I were um, doing the rabbit hole where the idea for this podcast was kind of born. Yeah, we we did a live recording of Beyond the Boys for <laughs> Common Space. Yeah, and we saw an Extension Rebellion. I don't know, was that like a sort of mini march? Yeah, around this music festival, um, and one of them was dressed up as a frog, um. But you know, his midriff was showing, which was shocking well, that to was me. The guy that's dressed as the bee. Oh, the bee. Like, yeah, like a kind of midriff bearing crop top on. And the person who was dressed as a frog was like crawling along the ground. Oh, dude. And the other people who were there playing like flutes and panpipes were carrying a banner that said, This is an emergency. <laughs> And it definitely didn't look like an emergency. I'm not being cynical, it really didn't. Yeah, yeah, so what else is on the list? We've had Boris Johnson calling Extension Rebellion uncooperative crusties. We've also had Donald J. Trump tweeting about his great and unmatched wisdom. Yeah, um, I find find that fascinating because it's kind of like a tweet from Alexander the Great or something mm-hmm. I mean that's very kind of um, God King <laughs> uh, I mean in many ways that was the fucking that was the craziest tweet yeah they have been getting crazier see if there is a second Trump time so- <laughs> see if there is a second coming <laughs> there's probably Trump <laughs> um, 
then um, you know the silver lining is we get to watch that going on for another five years. Think, imagine what his tweets will be like at the end of five years. Listen, if the Democrats choose water, mm-hmm. then we will have that for another five years. Yeah, yeah. Ten years. <clears throat> uh, on to the Ten actual, years. the invasion of uh, northern Syria and uh, include, including uh, Ryava. Um. This is uh, which uh, this is going to date this podcast, but began today officially, mm-hmm. and uh, it didn't register really more than a blip in the British media. Compare this, right? And by the way, what Turkey's actually going to do is is ethnic cleansing, right? So they're going to invade northern Syria, uh, which includes large parts of Kurdish territory, and they're going to cede it with Arab and Turkmen populations. Yeah. Two million people they're going to put there. So they're just going to get rid of the Kurds, right? So on the day that this war, sort of genocidal war was launched, didn't register in the media. Compare that to, um, for example, the stuff a few years ago between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, do you remember when Russia seized the Crimea, Right. A comparatively, you know, compared to this, a tiny aggressive manoeuvre, not necessarily involving ethnic cleansing. Uh, it was wall-to-wall news coverage, right? I just waited for hours on BBC News Today to even hear it reported. Oh, it's way down. It's point, and it was pointless. No, it's way down. Our military allies, who, by the way, there are Turkish troops in Britain right now being trained, Right by the British Armed Forces. This is a close ally of Britain and the United States. Them launching some sort of demented genocidal invasion of a foreign country. Yeah. Un- I mean, it's just incredible. Um, the, the 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 sheer lack of uh, coverage um, that it's getting. <clears throat> um, I mean, it was completely swamped by that weird shit today about a couple of celebs falling out or something. Colin Rooney and Rebecca Vardy. Who are they? (laughs) And why should I care? (laughs) Colleen Rooney is Wayne Rooney's wife. Right. And she, someone had been selling her Instagrams, things that were mentioned in her Instagram. I'm not talking about this after you've just been talking about Rooney's Syria. I'm sorry. That is not happening. Next. Next. Eva Bollander. Oh, yeah. So, also in the news this week was Eva Bollander, who's the Lord Provost of Glasgow, mm-hmm. um, has been dubbed the Imelda Marcos of Glasgow. I feel like there's a pun that could have been made there, but I've just not got around to it. <laughs> um, so, she's, the, she's an SNP councillor who is Lord Provost of Glasgow, and she has spent £8,000 on clothes shoes, makeup, mm-hmm. hair, spectacles, knickers mm-hmm. um, as part of her duties and build them to the council. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of all the people? Well, I've seen I've seen a few defences. It was actually quotes an underspend because she could have spent ten thousand. I know that was my favorite defense. <laughs> yeah, actually. that's not the definition of underspend, by the way. This, and you don't need to spend saying, any of it. Um, it's not a budget that has to be fulfilled. <laughs> this people, 
Yeah, it's not just there's fucking millions. <laughs> there's people saying, well, what she did was completely within the rules. It's like, yeah, but so were a lot of the MPs' expenses. That's not really the point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about like being illegal or fraudulent or forging or deceit. It was, this is a sign that the system is completely corrupt. Like, Do you know what it reminds me of, right? It reminds me of a time in an all-you-can-eat restaurant right in Glasgow one of the ones in Salky Hall Street I don't even know that it's still there something World Buffet it's called it's just called World Buffet and I was in there once and there was I don't know how to put this in a delicate way a monstrously fat family (laughs) at one of the tables right and look, I, I, you know, I'm not a slim guy, so it's totally fine for me to, to rip into people. Um, it's also like, saying that someone is fat is just a statement of fact. And the, the dad of this family, and it was like one of those families, do you know what I mean? Where they're all big and it's clearly being sort of passed down as a tradition from one generation to another. He was shoveling away, you know, a plate that's full of like Chinese food and curry and pizza and chips and fuck knows what, right? It's all there, right? It's all going on, right? And he's shoveling away at it, right? And then I noticed he was sort of slowing down, right? And eventually fell asleep. Sort of sitting upright, but with his head, do you know what I mean? He had a large cushion of a double chin sort of resting on his chest and he was just sort of, and he'd nodded off. And I watched him for about 30 seconds and he did that sort of thing where he, you know, shocked awake, remembered where he was and then kept shoveling in, right? Now, in a sense, because he stopped eating at some point, he underspent at World Buffet on Saki Hall Street. That's the same sense in which she underspent. She stopped before it became impossible to take any more. Literally, physically impossible. That guy probably stopped before... Well, I don't know. I mean, he could have erupted at some point, right? Could have been like that bit in Seven where the guy eats himself to death, right? But as far as I know, he did actually stop at one point. For a nap. (laughs) If only for a nap so he could recover a bit. Uh, That's what... That's what... That's her underspend. I mean, I am going to defend it on completely different grounds. <laughs> I'm not gonna defend it. I do just think it's it's just this so obscene. I tweeted today that we should start a trade union campaign that all employers must give employees five thousand pounds to spend on clothes and shoes and hair. I'm all in favour of that, yeah. You could go for like a moustache grooming. Uh-huh. Like that's a classic expenses diddle, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can see it in the daily record now. David Jameson and then uh-huh. Dylan break that and be like moustache grooming 500 pounds <laughs> yeah you can get someone to like crack their bones in your back you love oh. that oh I'm addicted to that but I mean I actually have an enormous hole in my crotch right I mean and listeners you're... cannot see this but I, the Primark jeans that I'm wearing right now are literally falling apart at the seams so you can understand how outraged I was by that slush fund I'd like to spend a thousand quid on a pair of knickers that everyone can see through the giant hole in my jeans. <laughs> this is the thing, like you would shop savvy if you if you had that kind of money to just spend on clothes. Yeah. But then she bought like really expensive items. She was in John Lewis, which no one shops in. Hmm. Is anyone it's middle aged Moz, isn't it? Yeah. Is that the one that's technically a co-op or something? Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> in a meaningless way. Doesn't yeah. recognize unions because it's like every worker has a stake in the company, uh, yeah. but it's all just <laughs> bullshit. Mm-hmm. So speaking of people in fancy dress, <laughs> we had a little Connor and Cass <clears throat> day out, didn't we? Mm-hmm. To go and see Joker. Yes, and I took David to the most luxurious cinema in Glasgow. Uh, yeah. With the Lux in Springfield Key, which is completely Americanized. Yeah. It's got these big reclining leather sofas where you put your feet up and it's got a slidey little tray. Oh my god, you think if I like keep going on about how amazing it was. We can get sponsored. Oh yeah. Oh that is that is the good gift. Eva Bonders ten grand in two years going on this is nothing compared to free cinematic. Though and I know that we are now destroying our ability to get sponsored, but her ten K wouldn't go far uh, in that <laughs> <laughs> in that cinema. It's not cheap. I mean, uh, the tickets were more than 15 quid each. That, that's because... That's we, because we got the reclining the, the no, seats. No, all the seats are recliners. Oh, right, okay. But the reason that we were in the expensive... The reason is we were in the expensive screen for the iSense, mm-hmm. which is why the sound was so impactful. Right, okay. Because it's got some like super incredible... And I spent 22 quid on snacks. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't actually that expensive. I just wanted to have that effect of that guy in the world buffet. <laughs> Nodded off halfway into Joker. That was, it was very expensive. Yeah. But it was snacks for three people. Three people. And, um, and, and it was, well, you know. And the just that I wanted. Sizes for monstrously fat people, yeah. The just that I wanted was the largest possible cinema size. It was more a, more a kind of trough. I love that. Yeah. There's nothing I like more in the world than a, like... An squishy, endless Coke, yeah. You see, like, a squishy Coke with ice in it from mm. one of those cups. Like, I will go to McDonald's to get a super-sized Diet Coke. Yeah. Rather than, like, a bottle. I really also like the kind of. I really like the idea of like fast food and cinema big drinks mm. because I have that really daft Americanized idea of what food. luxury is. Yeah. Yeah. And what well, culture this, is and this was very American luxury, but I was kind of surprised that I didn't see anyone coming out there with like taco dip stuff all over the front because you can recline right back. You've got a table thing, and loads of people were going in with like crisps with dips on it and all that yeah. shit. I mean, I was filthy by the time I came out of there. I yes. only had popcorn. <laughs> um, I will have one more complaint about that cinema, right? Are you fucking serious? Um, <laughs> now, I know how irritating the GFT can be, right? Because I, I go in there to watch films and the certain things about the audiences which are irritating in the GFT. For the GFT ex- seats are deeply uncomfortable. They are. You could not watch a film of that length at my age in the GFT. And also, middle class audiences will laugh at anything. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of laughter going on, including in films that don't mer- merit any laughter or aren't supposed to be funny, right? So there are annoying things about that audience as well. But it did annoy me that every single time the dialogue stopped in Joker, and it's not a dialogue-heavy film, the people next to me started having a chat. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I'm not up for this, man. 
I did notice them having a chat. Did, did you not? I guess you probably didn't want to approach them and say, stop talking in case you got in- taken out. <laughs> Angry white man, yeah, an incel. Yeah, yeah, you could have been mistaken for an incel. Yeah, I could have got up and said, uh, "Excuse me," and they're like, "That's begun." Do you know what I mean? There's a reviewer for the Guardian sitting a few rows back. He's like, "I knew this would happen." But you were in like Canada, because well. Oh right? God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, unfortunately, without a submachine gun on, underneath it, because if I did have a gun. Chatty McChat face sitting next to us would have got it straight yeah. away. Yeah. That's I mean that's a really good argument for allowing, yeah. Do you know what I mean? If if you had access to a gun and you just like casually had it in your anorak pocket when <laughs> <laughs> you were at the cinema. Yeah. It was raining, to be fair. Uh-huh. Um then you probably would have shot. Exactly. Why would you shoot people left right center? I'm moody. Yeah. I'm a moody woman. I uh so yeah, so that kind of disproves that. I mean, as far as I know, there's been no violence connected to the film so far. No, there hasn't, and there's been like a really intense reaction to it in the states, particularly. I saw a couple of things on Twitter, which is where I get all my news and information, like pictures of signs at cinemas in the states that say things like um, "No single man permitted in this film." <laughs> yeah. My God. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think it would be a great grift to be like, for £100, yeah. I will go... In fact, I'll make this an offer right now. For £100, I will go to the cinema with any single men that are listening who need the date for the cinema. You will definitely end up dead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Single men, that's how... They're all evil, right? (laughs) Have you not seen Joker? Right? That's what they're all like. They've all starved themselves. They all work as clowns for a living. They all have unhealthy relationships with their mothers and they all end up going on killing sprees. Okay. That's just a fact. That's what I understand from uh, contemporary film reviews. I read a few reviews of it after I saw it. And one of the things that I found out is A, most film reviews are stupidly long, badly written, uh, and I mean like so so the, the backlash against this film and there's now been several layers of backlash follows the now predictable pattern where I read one review that said it was a really evil film because uh, of its depiction of people with mental health problems and disabilities I read another one that said it was misogynist you read one that said it was racist like I almost now feel there's a sort of there's a retinue there's a list that needs to be filled out of Right, you do the one about how it's bad in that way, you do the one about how it's bad in this way and so on. And then there was just a general complaint that this was stoking, um, you know, attitudes about public violence, that it was encouraging young men or glamorising that kind of violence in some way. I mean, I will say about that review that I read, which was in the New Yorker, that called the film racist. Mm. I mean, I can barely understand the rationale, like the intellectual leaps that you would have to go through to agree with some of the things that are in this article. I mean, maybe maybe people do actually agree with it. I'm not sure. But it calls the film um, uh, Experience of Rare Numbing Emptiness. You ain't mean my mask. 
No, but it is that's an industrial dynamic. That's um, the there are lots of liberal U.S. type papers that demand that kind of analysis from any controversial kind of cultural moment. That kind of article reads well. I mean, a lot of people will have read that. Yeah. It's industrially I mean, I, important for liberal newspapers. I like reading the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, I always kind of have done. I think that the standard and quality of writing is always quite special. Mm. Um, I had to cancel my subscription though because there's no way I can read that amount of magazine content every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and still manage to snark on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so in this review, we should say first, spoiler alert. Oh yeah, yeah obviously. I'd say yeah. For the rest of this podcast, like I loved this film. Mm-hmm. I will probably go see it again. I will certainly go see it again if anyone needs to hire a date so they can get <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for anyone, so there will be spoilers if you've not seen it yet. So in this review, there's at the start of the film, the first kind of scene, the first thing that happens is Arthur Fleck is goes on to become the Joker is kind of jumped by a gang of young boys kind of teens chases them down an alleyway and then they they beat him in this review the New Yorker it says the crime alluded to is the attack wrongly attributed to five young men mislabeled as the Central Park Five an attack on an isolated and vulnerable white person by a group of young people of colour the scene waves away history and says, in effect, that it may not have been those five, but there were another group out there wreaking havoc. I mean, it's total pesh. It's I I actually can't believe the audacity someone would have to liken a group of kids beating up a clown to the Central Park Five. Like <laughs> I just I I think that that is just absurd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it then goes on to talk about the one of the pivotal scenes in the film, which is when Arthur Fleck finally snaps and shoots three wealthy white men who are bankers, bankers that work in the city, yeah, stockbrokers, and he shoots them on the subway. In this article, it says it's a evocation of the shooting in 1984 by Bernard Getz of four black teenagers in a subway who Getz believed were about to rob him. Mm. So this guy, Bernard Getz, who I think he was like a banker or something. It became a kind of cause. So it became a kind of early culture war kind of idea. he was a racist. He was an outright racist. Mm. They shot four black teenagers on the subway. This article says that the scene... White washes gets attack, eliminating any racial motive of turning it into an act of self-defense gone out of control. I'm just astounded mm-hmm. that someone could make those types of claims. Yeah. Um I think there's a certain type of media, you know, like like somebody who works in the media like that in the liberal media, if they can't find a, a, a way legitimately to express that critique, they'll go and find one. Do you know what I mean? Like I say, that's such a popular article. I mean, that article, in the last 10 years, that article saying this film contains X, Y, Z racial tropes or misogynist tropes or whatever, that article has been written about 10,000 times by now. And every single time it's put out there, it does very, very, very well, right? So that is an industrial... 
production thing. I just don't understand how that scene is in any way really related to that Barrett shoot. It's not. It's not trying to whitewash what he did by making the four black teenagers into three white rich men stockbrokers. <laughs> it's not doing that. Yeah. Um, it feels really contrived, to be honest. It is. Yeah. To, to try and make that as a as a point in, in the journal article. I think that what the the most interesting thing about the film, right, and this is something I've not seen in a single review so far, is its obsessive focus on class politics, right? In quite a primitive sense, perhaps. No, but I, I, I actually think that apart from the kind of the narrative about Arthur Fleck's mental illness, class conflict is the primary driver yeah. of the film. Yeah. Like, that's actually the primary driver of the entire storyline. Yeah. Um, and social class sometimes features in films, but not in the way that it does in this film. No, not to be like a major thematic influence on the entire plot. Yeah. So, so for example, drawing on the same, uh, I was also, I have to say, glad that the comic book references are very thin uh, on the ground and sort of. Because, I mean, neither of us are a fan of the comic book film. No. But if you remember those, the, 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 the Dark Knight trilogy, mm-hmm. right, which is one of the big, big things that popularised the kind of adult slant on comic books. In the final film in that trilogy, social class and the concept of class revolution does feature. But it features as a, first of all, the revolutionaries are cynical and not genuinely ideologically motivated. The class antagonisms are artificial and created by a criminal conspiracy. And in the end, people who felt class anger um, uh, decide that they shouldn't have, and there's a resolution between the social classes. And that's typically when you see class politics portrayed on uh, infection, there's always a resolution at the end where they agree to be nice to each other. In this film, um, the class anger is real. It's spontaneous. So a lot of the reviews I've read say, um, well, the Joker character, he instigates this movement. He does he not. Does not he's, right? he is the, he's ambivalent about it. I mean, he says very clearly, I believe in nothing. I don't, yeah. I don't believe in anything. The reason that the, 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 the kind of riotous class-based movement emerges in this fictionalised Gotham City is because... The, the the Wayne Enterprises guy, who's a kind of effete, smug, super rich, patrician liberal, calls the working class in the city clowns. That's where it comes from, right? So it's it's totally spontaneous. And throughout the entire film, you're never the only source of all the problems in the city is continually identified and re-identified as the rich. It's not this big melange of problems to be confronted by the characters. The rich are causing everything to fall apart. There's a huge strike in the city, everything's falling apart. There's austerity, all the services are disappearing. Um, yeah, so these are, this is the thing I think that gets missed because it really frustrated me when we were talking about like the Joker instigates this, instigates this movement or he is like at the helm of this movement. Neither of those things are true. Hmm. Because of, so the film starts with the radio on in the background and they're talking about the garbage strike. Mm-hmm. And there's the, uh, when he's seeing a social worker or he's on so, like a, a social service of some sorts. 
and that is eventually cancelled because of funding and she says Arthur they don't care about people like you and they don't care about people like me yeah yeah this is they that they're talking about it, it is the one percent is the Thomas Waynes of the world mm-hmm. but none of this is particularly new in the Batman films either I think that there's a review of Tim Burton's Batman mm. and which is the Joker yeah. um, as well features the Joker where it said Roger Ebert who says we have to remind ourselves to cheer for Batman because the Joker is such a sympathetic character so the idea of the Joker being portrayed in a sort of sympathetic way isn't particularly new mm-hmm. but these conditions of austerity and strife are not created by him he is not the one who is flaring up this conflict yeah he is both part of it and a product of it. Yeah, he's sort of reflecting it. Yeah. yeah, and he just ignites the powder keg. Mm. But it's actually the act that he commits is not necessarily the act that he plans to commit to start a riot either. Yeah. These men who are on the subway, who are rich, they are drunk, mm. they are harassing a woman, they are bullies they try and beat him Mm. and that's when he loses his temper and he shoots them Mm. in that moment i can't think of many people who are in the cinema with us or who've seen that film who would not think they deserved it yeah yeah. in some way i'm not saying that everyone says like yeah they want to be killed but it's it's portrayed in such a way that you you sympathize and understand with his reaction to yeah. that. And it's by circumstance of everything that's happened to him in society, of everything that's happening around him, that that is the act of violence mm-hmm. that kind of explodes him. But he doesn't say to people, wear the clown mask. It is exactly as you say. It's Thomas Wayne on TV saying, these people are clowns. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think like, kind of creates the backlash. And I also think of Bruce Wayne, like so like in Batman films mm-hmm. more than um, Thomas Wayne in this one, as a sort of like Elon Musk type character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? He's like he's basically Elon Musk, the philanthropic billionaire who wants to solve the world's problems and has like a really stupid and expensive car. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and a lab full of expensive toys. And a lab full, of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're kind of like proto Elon Musk vibe mm. um, to this whole thing. But he is like the kind of he's the he's the one percenter. Mm. There's a bit where Thomas Wayne says, "I don't understand why people just won't listen to what I'm trying to say to them. I want to, you know, bring them out of poverty and like any sort of like why can't they just be grateful about this? Mm. You know, he's he is the one percent. He is." The elite, he is that philanthropic billionaire class mm. who have continued to get rich at the majority's expense. But as I say, I mean, I, I mean, we've already ruined the film for anyone who wants to see it. We did, we did, this, we did. Big spoiler warning. Yeah. So I think the thing that shocks people about the film, right? I should say as well, I came out of it wondering how people could be shocked by it because it's a violent film, but it's not an especially violent film by it's Hollywood standards. Not gratuitous. No. Um, and uh, the 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 message, such as there is one, 
again, is actually, as everyone keeps saying, it's a film that relies very heavily on, it leans very heavily on its references. So it's very similar in its basic plot to films like uh, Taxi Driver and a number of others. King of Comedy. King of Comedy. Quite a lot of others, actually. I mean, I think there's quite a lot of references dropped and so on. Yeah, I definitely spotted the Silence of the Lambs reference. Mm. I think there was two bits. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is my favourite film of all time, so... And maybe just being a geek here. But that first scene where he's putting on the makeup, mm-hmm. he's like painting his lips. There's definitely like that scene with Buffalo Bill where mm-hmm. he starts putting the lipstick on. Um, and there's also, I mean, one of the most beautiful scenes is after that subway murder and he runs into the pu- public toilet and just does that dance, mm-hmm. the slow dance where he transforms at yeah. that moment. He becomes a different person mm-hmm. after that act. And then the way that Dad's kind of showed that it was very Lambs, you know, like yeah. from his Goodbye Horses yeah. scene. And there's also like some of the costume choices for Joachim Phoenix, who's just incredible in it. What an actor he is. But there's a couple of his costume choices that reminded me of The Shining, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. The, yeah. the bomber jacket the black hair slicked back especially when he's walking into like an almost fantasy scene in the bathroom yeah um, and of course Jack Nicholson was, was, uh, was the, the original Joker. kind of Joker yeah um, but I, I the thing that I think has actually shocked some of the reviewers without them saying as much is the lack of reconciliation at the end of the film a series of wealthy individuals including this you know wealthy corporate liberal um, are simply murdered and that's how the conflict resolves itself mm. it's not resolved in as in almost any other Hollywood treatment of class that a mediation is found I mean the classic example of that goes way beyond the Hollywood era it would be th- not way beyond the Hollywood era but for example to um, uh, what's it called that famous German film Metropolis so Metropolis famously is largely about conflicts between social class, uh, kind of intermingled with conflicts over sexuality and stuff like that. Very famously, at the end of Metropolis, the working class and, and, and the bourgeoisie make friends. Like, that's a very like common like re, uh, recapitulation. See, when people say that the film's really bleak or stark or abrupt or um, that it's kind of... It's leaving um, sort of untrimmed, uncompleted endings that people might want to go out and fulfill some violent fantasy or something. Honestly, I think that's what they're reacting to. I think they're reacting to the fact that if the film has a message, which I don't think it does on purpose, Mm. like I don't think that it's that profound. I don't think it's... I mean, famously, the director has spent the last couple of weeks complaining about, as he puts it, the far left. Right, which I think is an interest who've criticised his film as far as he sees it, which is a very interesting point because 20 or 30 years ago this would very much have been seen as a far left film far extreme in the sense that it resolves class conflict through the destruction of an oppressive class by the oppressed element yeah. um, this, is, this is like Marxist theory of revolution stuff, yeah. that's what this film teaches is that class conflict through class conflict emerges a revolt in the form of protests but the, in the film the Joker never calls for revolution mm-hmm. like, he doesn't call for revolution he doesn't call for people to 
you know, unshackle themselves or anything like that. And it's left open. Yeah. It is left unresolved, as you say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is disturbing to me that, and look, I mean, right-wing people are obviously always going to say, well, the far left are censorious or whatever. The problem is when there's an element of truth there, uh, I don't actually understand why the left wouldn't celebrate this film. That's not to say, by the way, that it's, I'm not, I don't think it's the greatest film ever or, or that it's got the most profound political message. All it does is observe the evident reality of class hatred in contemporary society. And it is hatred rather than concern over whether or not a society is truly just, you know, that's the, you but know what I mean? the thing is like seeing the film at the end when Joker says, you people with your systems, you are the one who, ones who get to decide what is right and what is wrong and what is funny and what is unfunny. Mm-hmm. See the scene I'm talking about on the subway when he kills those three men. What is reflected in the quote-unquote mob or the movement that rises up and the majority of the audience is that is justice. Mm-hmm. Like, that is right and wrong. But it's not... It doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm. What is right and wrong is blurred depending on who is viewing that situation. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as the film itself blurs the lines between right and wrong and good and bad, like what is good, what is evil, but it reminds you of what your socioeconomic status is. Like if you're watching a scene where there's an angry mob rising up and, you know, creating havoc and do you sympathise with Arthur Fleck and what he's done and what he's become? Can you find that compassion? Then you're worth the 99%. If you think he is inherently evil and that ungrateful, unwashed mob are just violent and disgusting, which I think tells you something about reviewers in The New Yorker. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think think if you, exactly, if you see that film and you feel threatened by it, it might not suggest that the thing that you're threatened by is white nationalism or um, incels. You might actually feel threatened by the reality of social anger, of justified social anger. Um, and it's interesting to me that like, one of the most frequent critiques is this will make people unsafe, this film. Right? You know this thing about safety is a real refrain of that kind of woke left commentary and stuff. There's a real concern over safety, the concept of, of public safety, um, which is sort of incompatible with radical democratic politics. It's also incompatible with, I mean, fair enough, we've just been talking about Extension Rebellion and some of their more like laughable theatrics, but for young people and so I mean like 13, 14 year olds now mm. safety like, is a meaningless concept it's meaningless yeah. like yeah. you're growing up knowing that the world is ending yeah and none of us like so we are millennials Gen X or Bert, like people can't really understand what that shift in mentality must be like mm. so this whole thing about like safety it's almost like it's like Arthur Fleck in this movie being a clown and being forced by pulling his mouth up to smile and to always be happy Mm. when really he's miserable inside it's like oh we're going to protect you and make you safe from all these dangerous things but the reality is deep down inside you know Mm -hmm. you're fucked and that's psychoanalysis error with (laughs) cat (laughs) boy 
I would go see that film again. Yeah. Will we go see it again? Could do. I also want to see Judeo. Uh, what's, is this the film about Judy Garland? Yeah. Why is she interesting? Oh. I don't know anything about like <laughs> popular culture. Okay. And... We'll do that next week on the pod. Okay. We'll, we'll do a sort of five reasons why you should know who Judy Garland is. <laughs> I think to play us out this week, we should have That's Life by Frank Sinatra because it's used in the Joker movie and I've listened to it a lot sure they also use a Gary Glitter song <laughs> we wouldn't be using that yeah we don't want to say the many royalties <laughs> what's the currency in Bangkok <laughs> that's life that's what all the people say You're riding high in April Shot down in May But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top Back on top in June I said that's life That's life And as funny as it may seem some people get their kicks stomping on a dream but i don't let it let it get me down cause this fine old world it keeps spinning around i've been a puppet a pauper a pirate a poet a pawn and a king i've been up and down and over and out and I know one thing Each time I find myself Flat on my face I pick myself up And get back in the race That's life That's life I tell you, I can't deny it I thought of quitting, baby But my heart just ain't gonna buy it and if I didn't think it was worth one single try I'd jump right on a big bird And then I'd fly I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet A pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out And I know one thing Each time I find myself playing Flat on my face I just pick myself up And get back in the race That's life That's life And I can't deny it Many times I thought of cutting out But my heart won't buy it But if there's nothing shaking Come this here July I'm gonna roll myself up in a big ball and